Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. This message is from one of our pastors here at Central. Well, good morning. So good to be with you today. My name is Sharice Jenkins. I'm Pastor Kurt's wife. Don't worry, I won't bore you to death today, I promise. We are going to have a beautiful service. We're going to talk about the miracle working, powerful God that we serve. We're going to have communion, and then we're going to watch 12 baptisms. I mean, that is awesome. You came on the right day came on the right day. If you're watching online today, be blessed as you share with us in this service. We pray that you'll be able to join us next week. I brought this picture today. I have several of these in our home on a shelf, and I remember the first time that I purchased one, I felt pretty selfish spending the money on it. I remember being at local stores and seeing them week after week, and I thought, oh, I'd really like to have one of those. And and then I just, I just hunkered down, I just spent the money on it. And I, I did, I felt selfish about it, but there was a real spiritual connection and significance of what this picture meant to me. It meant the provision of the Lord, and it reminds me of the widow in 2 Kings chapter 4. The widow inquired of Elisha, who ne- she needed provision for she and her sons. So much so that they were on their last bit of food, and they would have died. Now, Elisha, instead of just giving her an instantaneous miracle, he gives her instruction. The instruction was to gather vessels and that they would fill with oil. And for the measure of which she gathered, she and her sons gathered vessels, they would be filled. That was the measure that they would be filled. The reason that I love this story is that it's about provision and increase and necessity. She and her, her sons, they found the vessels and the oil did come and she got to baking. They were provided for. They were filled and their faith had increased. And I only link this testament in the, this Old Testament story to what we will talk about today in John chapter 2 because they both ring true of faith and persistence, necessity, provision, and abundance, as well as a number of vessels that were being used. Now, in the Old Testament, we do not know how many vessels were gathered where the oil was filled. But in the New Testament, in this story in John chapter 2, if you were reading with us this week, we see that there were six water pots. And this is a number in Scripture that is not often used, the number six. But what I couldn't get away from was its prophetic meaning. The number of six signifies humanity. Adam was created on the sixth day. Now, we as humans, we are pretty fallible, right? We mess things up. But I want us to keep in mind this number of six. As I dug a little deeper, I noticed that 
They tried to put Jesus on the level of humanity as they accused him of sin and as they accused him before the cross. But there were six people who found him to be innocent. There were six. Pontius Pilate, Herod, Judas, after the devil left him, Pontius Pilate's wife, one of the thieves on the cross, and the Roman centurion, all deemed him to be innocent, six people. Please keep that number six in mind as we unpack this beautiful story from John chapter two, verses one through 12. Let's listen to the reading of his word this morning by one of our family members. Sydney Shaw, and I'm going to be reading John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. What an impactful story this is. But as I continue to read in scripture, oh my goodness, I I was just completely wrecked at my desk over the last few weeks preparing because it wasn't just a miracle for a wedding. There was so much more, and so we're going to get to that. But Jesus was going to a wedding. How many of you like to go to a wedding? Okay, just a lot of women. (laughs) The guys don't love it as much, but I love to go to a wedding. And when I was a young adult, I worked for a florist, a local florist. She was a master florist. And we would, I mean, we would just, you take just these beautiful flowers and turn them into gorgeous arrangements and boutonnieres and and bouquets for someone's special day. The hours of intention that went into it and the hours of preparation and setup. Some of the budgets for the weddings were very meager and they just had enough for one bouquet for the bride. All the way to someone who had budget for $1 million just for flowers. Yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, that wedding was like, wow, like should have been in a movie. It was amazing. But every wedding was unique, and we would, we would fluff the bride's dress and send her down the aisle and hand her her bouquet. Everything was just so fun. I love weddings. And there's something so spiritually significant, too, especially when two Christians come together under the covenant of the Lord. 
Now, every wedding, no matter how perfectly executed it is, there's always a hiccup, right? How many of you had a hiccup at your wedding? Okay, maybe, maybe we were the only ones, I don't know. Well, we had a couple hiccups at ours, but that's what makes the story more fun. So I'll tell you a quick story of one of the hiccups at our wedding. So growing up in the church, I knew that a bride was supposed to have no spot, no wrinkle, right? The bride of Christ, no spot, no wrinkle. So I get dressed at home and we get in a, a, an antique car and come to the wedding. I love that. That was so fun. It was so blazing hot the day we got married. The day before our wedding was my mother's birthday. The day of our wedding was Kurt's birthday. The day after our wedding was Kurt's father's birthday. So there was so much celebrating going on. We get to the church, and where our nursery is right now was actually the original sanctuary of the church. And there were three little steps joining the two buildings. There, there was an old water fountain, and we had a beautiful time of prayer, my bridesmaids, my my family and I, um, my two moms, my mother and Kurt's mom, grandparents, we all had a beautiful time of prayer. And we're getting ready and coming down the steps into the hallway here. And at the old doors, of course, they had the windows. And Kurt and his groomsmen were coming into the church, and Kurt's best man was his grandfather. How dear is that? Oh, that's where everybody says, oh, okay. Good job. And I, I thought for sure that he saw me through that window. So I, I like eked out, right? And so I squatted down really fast. And let me tell you, let me pause the story. When we were looking for my dress and veil and all of the apparel, my father brought to me a very beautiful veil. It's called a mantilla, and it's a Spanish um, article for a wedding. We're not Spanish, we're actually Italian, but it's a Mediterranean type. And it's, it goes from your toes all the way to your fingertips and all the way back, longer than cathedral. It was enormous, but it was encrusted in gold and silver. But what my father didn't know at the time, that the Lord had given me a verse in Psalm about being covered in gold and silver for my wedding day. So I felt like when the Lord handed that to me and my earthly father handed that to me, that was my veil. Well, fast forward to wedding day. When I squat down, the air went up underneath my veil and my dress and caught on my three and a half inch heel. And it ripped an eight-inch hole in my veil in the front. (laughs) I'm seeing some of the young girls going like this. Yes, I was mortified. My dad locked eyes with me, and he kept going, you look beautiful, you look beautiful, you look beautiful, you look beautiful. Once I hit the doors and came down to the center aisle, there was, I didn't think twice about it. But a bride without spot or wrinkle We'll talk about that in a little bit too. But here in Cana, there was a hiccup at the wedding. They ran out of wine. And what we have to know about these weddings in that day is according to Jewish oral tradition in the Mishnah, that a wedding would take place on a Wednesday if she was a virgin and on a Thursday if she was a widow. And the the groom, the bridegroom would come in the middle of the night to come and get her with a torch processional with he and his guys to come and get his bride. That's why in scripture, when Jesus said to his disciples, behold, I come quickly, they could make the connection, oh, we're the bride of Christ. He's coming for us. He will come quickly for us someday. 
So the bridegroom would come to the bride's house, pick her up, and then they would go to the groom's home where the feast would be held, and it would be held for days, and the groom was responsible for providing the wine. Now, if the wine ran out, the bride's family could actually sue the groom. How about that? Every wedding, no matter how well planned, there's always a hiccup. So there was a need here at this wedding. I love the interaction here between Jesus and his mother, right? Mother and son having this little conversation. Mary says, Jesus, there's no wine. And Jesus, in so many words, is like, yep, okay, ma, uh, what's this got to do with me? It's not on the schedule. You know what I'm saying, mom? Before I understood the translation here and the understanding in the original language, I always thought when he called her woman, he was being aggressive and, and disrespectful to her, and my eyebrow went up. And so all the moms in the room, lower your eyebrow. But my boys better never call me woman. <laughs> I have three sons. This reference is also when he calls her woman at, in John 19:26, when he's hanging on the cross and he calls her woman. Mother, behold your son. See, there was an exchange here that was about to happen and he knew if he were to step out and be revealed as the Messiah, he had to shift in his relationship from son to savior. And she had to move from mother to daughter. Woman, he says. It changes the perspective there in that scripture, doesn't it now? You might want to write in your Bible, John 19, 26 there, to remind yourself that it was an endearment term, woman. I love, though, that he doesn't really say anything in that moment other than woman, woman. And she doesn't respond to him at all, does she? She just turns around and says, hey, to the disciples, do whatever he tells you. But I love that she doesn't boss him. She doesn't say, Jesus, I told you. She turns to the disciples. And I just want to speak prophetically here for a moment to our moms in the house. Whether you are a spiritual mom or you have born children physically. Don't ever step ahead of God's timing for your children. Don't shift the relationship before it's time. Listen, we moms who have born children, like I knew their names as I carried them in the womb as Kurt and I would pray what to name that baby and what things the Lord prophetically told us for each of our four children that they would do in the kingdom of God. Because every child has a purpose under the kingdom of heaven. But I can't get ahead of the Lord's timing to tell my kids to do things. Don't you know you're supposed to do this for Jesus? But I also want to say, as we mother and father people in the spirit, 
As we mother them in the spirit realm, there will be times when God speaks prophetically through you to someone else that they might need a little pat on the behind to get moving. They might need your words to care for them, to push them along in their sense of ministry to advance the kingdom of the Lord. So I call out to all the mamas in the room, in the spirit realm, don't be afraid to open your mouth, but be careful of the timing. I love here in verse seven that Jesus tells his disciples to fill the water pots. We do not know if the water pots were empty or at least half filled, almost full, we don't know, but he tells them to fill it. Now what he does not tell them is how much to fill it. It says here in scriptures that they filled it to the brim. Verse seven, and they filled them up to the brim. He didn't ask them to fill it to the brim, but they did. They didn't question his authority or his directives. They just obeyed. What is your level of obedience today? You know, when we pray those big prayers, Lord, fill me. Fill me with your fire. Come on, we're Pentecostal. Fill me with your fire. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me to the overflow. Are you willing to be filled to the brim So much so if somebody bumped you, you'd spill out a little bit. Are you willing to be that full for him? How is your level of obedience today? Verse 6 shows us that there were six water pots ranging from 20 to 30 gallons each. So let's just say that there are 20, 20 gallons apiece. In total, that's 120 gallons That's a lot of wine that was about to be produced. This this water that was in these pots or these stone pots, this was supposed to be, scripture tells us it held water for purification reasons uh, according to Jewish law. The water could have been used for preparation for the wedding, for cleansing of hands, for even the dishes, or even so much so for the bodies of the bride and the groom getting ready for their day. Regardless, that water was dirty. It was contaminated. It probably didn't smell good. It probably attracted some bugs or were, had some floating in it. Isn't it like the Lord to take something filthy and make it clean and new and better? The jars represented ritual purification and hence Jewish law. Jesus' blood would one day represent the fullness of purification of the body and the soul in the fulfillment of the law. Remember that there were six jars, right? The number of humanity. Remember that Jesus is the bridegroom, and this is a wedding. Jesus is bringing the wine to the wedding. Jesus is the seventh vessel completing the story. He showed up and brought the new wine. 
You know, in the book of John, there's a series of sevens. There's themes of sevens. Kurt unpacked the first week that there were seven I am's. There's seven significant conversations. There's, um, there's seven miracles that are noted. And it just kept jumping off the page to me. Why six? Why six water pots? Because Jesus is the seventh. He's the completion. He's the perfect one. He's the perfect one. Let's talk about this water into wine for just a second. Can you break it down here, just even scientifically for a minute? Water is oxygen and hydrogen. Now listen, I didn't do so well in chemistry in high school. Anybody else there with me? I'm like, what are you talking about right now? But Jesus showed his divine authority over creation, disassembling the atoms of water and reassembling them into carbon and nitrogen and sugars and yeast. When he took that water and created wine, it completely changed the format. We have no idea if it was red wine or white wine, if it was sweet or sour. I don't know a thing about wine, but listen, what I do know is that God, in his infinite power, gave Jesus the authority to create the first miracle, not for just consumption, but there was so much more. There was so much more. Now, I got to tell you something funny. We're at the house, and I could not get this to work. And I was frustrated. We had a bunch of teenagers over, and I was trying to work with it, get the coloring right, and that's not quite right either. But I said to Kurt, I was, I was frustrated. I was getting a little whiny. And I said, I can't get my miracle to work. <laughs> and he laughed. He was just shaking his head. And he's like, <laughs> so he helped me <laughs> get my miracle right. So... No, Jesus is the only one working miracles. We can do miracles through his authority and through his power, right, as believers. But the science behind it, man, that just wrecked me, the science. He disassembled what he created and recreated something new, new wine. Listen, the miracle wasn't just a liquid exchange. There was more. The first miracle was a foreshadow. The first miracle was a foreshadow of things to come. Now listen, if we think out of those six water pots, there were about 120 gallons of wine, that's an expensive amount of goods, right? But I'm sorry, I thought the king came to the wedding, and the king can surely afford it. The king can afford all the good wine. He began with a meager scene. This was just a hometown wedding, and he brought the very best. That sounds like his birth. He was born in a barn or a cave, and brilliance showed up on the night that he was born. That's how our Jesus works. Let's talk about Pentecost for a minute. This first miracle was just not so they could drink at a wedding. This was a foreshadowing of Pentecost. If you flip over to Acts 1.15 in your Bible, it says that there were about 120 people gathered there. It does not say 120, period. It says about 120. If we know that there's about 120 gallons of wine, that's almost like a gallon per person. 
of a pouring out of his spirit upon his people that day. There were tongues and fire and a pouring out of new wine that day. That's just a proposition. That's not scriptural. It's just a visual, a metaphor. It's a foreshadowing of what his presence was doing. Think about it. Six water pots, 120 gallons, 120 believers, a Holy Spirit, boom. John 3, 34, for he whom God had sent speaks the words of God for God does not give the Spirit by measure. That means without limits. He doesn't just give a little bit or a little sprinkling to you and a whole lot to you. He douses his kids. He pours it out. He pours it out. This foreshadowing was not just for the the Pentecost. It was also for the second coming and the marriage supper of the Lamb. John 6.10, the master of the ceremonies of the wedding When the servants drew up the water and brought it to him, he says, you have kept the best wine for last. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the best. And even though this was the very beginning of his ministry, this was the first miracle, what a setting for it. It's a wedding. Someday when he returns for his church, the bridegroom will come and he again will be the best for last. Amen? He's going to be the best. Listen, we will be seated with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There he will be at the head of the table. Can you imagine with his arms stretched wide and we'll see the scars on his hands? To know that his sacrifice for us, Revelation 19, 6 through 9, I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean, waves or the crash of loud thunder. I love how John here cannot even distinguish what the sound is. It's just loud. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Can you imagine the sound of thunderous voices saying this? Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. Can you hear the chorus of all the saints who have gone on? The cloud of great witnesses sitting at the table, getting ready to eat with him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. Can you see everybody banging their cups? Clink, 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 like at a wedding. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. That is going to be the most extravagant wedding ever. And I hope there are flowers there. And I want to be on the committee. I can't wait. Listen, Jesus told his disciples at the last Passover before he was arrested that he would not drink of the vine again until he drinks anew with us. So when he raises that glass of new wine at the marriage feast, we're all going to drink with him then. And he won't have had anything to drink until that time. 
How deep is that? He can drink anything he wants at any time, but not until he's with us. Not until the bride comes home. That first miracle was a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit outcoming and his second coming. I wanna pause here for a moment. I just wanna speak to you candidly. Growing up in the church, I've heard how people have taken this, this part of John and have used it for an excuse for alcohol consumption. Many people have said, well, Jesus drank, so will I. Jesus turned the water to wine, so it's okay for me. Their wine was less fermented. Their wine was more fermented. It goes all over the place. In biblical times, it was, uh, the water was unpurified, so that's why they drank it. I've heard every, every part of in the fabric of the conversation. In Luke 7, Jesus comes against the Pharisees who poked their fun at John the Baptist who did not drink wine or eat bread. He didn't even eat carbs. And they made fun of Jesus who did both. I just want you to know from this pulpit, those of us who are ministers of the Assemblies of God, we sign a document that we will not consume alcohol so we are not tainted by it to deliver a clear clear word of God. When my parents became Christians, we, we never had a lick of alcohol in our home, never. And I, as an Italian, we, it was just customary. There was a bottle of wine on the table all the time. We have a family member who owns a winery for business. And so we could have had our spoil. But we never had anything in the house. And I have walked the vineyards, they're beautiful. And when I'm in the vineyards, I can only think of John 15, abide in me and bear much fruit. That's all I can think of. And I know it's a touchy subject in the church, but I wanna just say this, don't pervert the miracle. Don't pervert it. Because if you're remembering, he didn't just make wine for a wedding so they could get toasted or celebrate. It was for so much more. Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul writes, and do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker and a strong drink is a brawler. Whoever goes astray by them is not wise. Scripture also tells us to not take on the appearance of evil or to look like the world because you're set apart as a believer. And Jesus did remind us that he won't drink again until he's with us. And so if Jesus can wait, so can I. Listen, I, in my life I've been enough, I've been around enough people who have been drunk. It's not pretty. I've watched it ruin families. I I have never been drunk. But I have been fool enough of the spirit where I cannot keep control of my body and I utter babblings under my mouth that I do not understand in the fullness of the Spirit. Alcohol costs money, but the Spirit is free. But Jesus paid a really hearty price for it. So in this story, we saw that there is need. It was a foreshadowing of things to come. 
and it is new wine. Jesus talks about wineskins in Matthew 9, 17. No one can put new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. If you put new wine in an old vessel, it's too brittle, it's going to break. You must put new wine in a new skin. But listen, a new wineskin requires work on your part. That that it requires you to kill an animal, clean the hide, tether the skin, sew the skin, temper the skin, and waterproof it to create a tight seal for the wine to not leak out. A new wineskin is preparation in anticipation for holding something of new value. A new wineskin requires, a new wine requires new wineskin. What I love is that when Jesus turned the water into wine, we don't know when it happened. Was it when they drew the water out or did it still look like dirty water? Was it when it was in the cup and then it turned as he drank it? Regardless, he said this was the best wine he had ever tasted. Taste and see that the Lord is good. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. I propose that this wine at that wedding had never been harvested before because it was the new wine. I love verse 11. If you take a look at it real quick with, as we finish out today. It reads, this is the beginning of signs of Jesus that he did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. I feel like that verse needs an orchestra behind it and great narration like uh, James Earl Jones or something, you know, like a deep voice and this was the miracle of Jesus and his glory was manifested, and his disciples believed. I believe it just needs so much oomph behind it. This was the moment. This was the moment. A few last observations of this miracle. One, it was his first, not his last. Jesus never touched the water. At least to the account that we read here, he never touched it. The disciples were doing the work. He told the disciples in verses 7 and 8, fill the servants, drew the water, and then that was taken to the master of the wedding. Jesus never touched it, according to what we see here. This miracle was done in private. It was quiet. It wasn't exploded onto the scene. When the guests were served, the wine... They didn't know what happened behind those closed doors. That miracle was in private, and so I implore to you, the miracle that happens at your bedside when you're on your knees or at your kitchen table is just as justified when you're here at the altar. He's a miracle-working God, whether you're under the canopy of this church building or when you're at your home or in your car or at your desk. And number four, the miracle was lavish. Verse 10 says it was the best wine. Of course it was. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Jesus does not only supply necessaries, but he gives luxuries. And this is highly significant in his kingdom of grace. He gives men not only the water of life that they can be refreshed to drink, but he also gives wine that they may rejoice exceedingly. So today we have unpacked water, wine, and in the very beginning we talked about oil. Those three liquids represent the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you today, what is the Lord pouring out on you? And is your vessel big enough to hold what he wants to give you? Because he's always pouring out. Remember, without limits, as John says, without limits. We're going to move into communion, and and it's just going to be a quiet moment here. So if you would grab your communion cup, and if you need communion, our ushers ushers will come around. Just slip up your hand. They'll, They'll make sure that you get that. And then we're going to celebrate with our our baptism candidates. You can peel off that very top layer to reveal the wafer and get the second tab just a little ready for as we drink the juice. I'm going to be reading today from Mark 14, 22 through 25, but first we want to examine our hearts before we come to the Lord's table today to remember his death and resurrection. So let us bow our heads together. Will you just in the quiet of these moments examine your heart before the Lord as you thank him for what he did for you? Thank you, Lord. Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Rove over my heart, Father. Reveal the places, Lord, that I I don't see. Forgive me, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your great sacrifice as we reflect on these scriptures today and remember your body that was broken for us and the power of your resurrection and the miracle that that was. We stand in your miraculous power today. We are in awe of you. Our minds cannot wrap around how great you are how big your love is, how strong you are. And so we thank you. Mark 14, 22 through 25, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it 
gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's remember how his body was bruised for our sins and wounded for our wrongs. Let's take that way for today. Thank you, Jesus. You were beat beyond recognition for me, Father. By your stripes I am healed. Thank you, Jesus. As we prepare to take the cup I would ask if there's someone in the room or any of you, you just need a miracle today. Will you stand to your feet? We've talked about his first miracle. It wasn't his last. And it foreshadowed his power to come. So as we stand holding the cup representing his blood, the power of Jesus, will you stand to your feet if you need a miracle today? You need a miracle Miracle working God. Hallelujah, miracle working God. And right here in this moment, Jesus, we know you can work with the faith. Just like the woman who went and sent her sons to gather the vessels for the oil. And with dirty water, you turned it into wine, new wine. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my body of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take this cup today and recall that shed blood of Jesus, but he will celebrate with us one day soon, amen? Stand in your miracle today. Let's take the cup. Would you all just stand to your feet and lift your hands to the Lord and thank the Lord for the miracle working power that it's in his hands, in his blood. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, we bless you for your power. We thank you, God. Just say it out. Just speak it out of your mouth. Just declare unto the king of kings. He knows he's strong, but he wants to know that you know it. Just say it unto him. Thank you, Lord, for your power. Thank you, Lord, for the miracles in our life. The ones, forgive us when we miss them, Lord God, the day-to-day miracles. Oh, Lord, you are always working. Thank you, Jesus. We just praise you. We praise you. We praise you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you have a prayer language, just begin to pray it out and, and just, just exalt the name of Jesus. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. We lift up the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, your power is limitless. Oh, thank you, God. Jesus. Hallelujah. Miracle working Savior, thank you. Oh, hallelujah. Praise your name. Praise your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm. I just pray in the gentleness of his presence that the Lord will meet you today, just all afternoon, that we'll hear testimonies of miracles this week. Don't miss a miracle. Don't miss a miracle. He's always working. He's always working. Don't miss a miracle. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media. 